All right, everybody, we are going to go ahead and, and get started. I will give more of an update about Scott and Liliana when we get to the service time. Uh, but for right now, we're going to go ahead and go back to our cultural series for today. The plan, just so you know, the plan next Sunday is that uh, Sunday schools are going to be, uh, well, we're, we're going to have another time of prayer uh, next Sunday. And that will be uh, in place of other Sunday school classes. Uh, we originally weren't going to have anything that Sunday, but, but the plan next Sunday is to meet uh, in the gym for the time of prayer at 2 o'clock again. And the only other class that we'll be meeting is just the one that Leah and Taylor are doing for five and six-year-olds, and, the, and, the, and also the, the nursery will be, will be open as well. But outside of that, the only Sunday school option will be the time of prayer at 2 o'clock, Lord willing, next Sunday in the gym. Uh, thank you all for being here today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up again to the very beginning of your, of your Bible, to Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> we are dealing with our series, as you can see, Against the Culture for the culture, and we have dealt with abortion for maybe three weeks, I think, or so on that, and then we dealt with for transgenderism for about three weeks, and now we are moving into homosexuality for the next, I don't know how many weeks. It'll, there's just a whole lot to cover, and uh, we don't feel like we're going to rush through it, so we'll, we'll probably take a number of weeks uh, dealing with that, and, uh, and we've got even more to cover after we get through with that subject, so there's a, there's a lot here, and uh, Papa Fred, would you open us in prayer, and then we will uh, dive in. I'd love to. Thank you, Mark. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, as we come before you today in um, adoration and praise and prayer and, and thanksgiving, um, give us the insight and wisdom of your spirit as we um, deal with a subject that's um, contrary to your plan for creation. Uh, is uh, indicated in, in Genesis 1 and 2. And um, we're not being mean-spirited. Uh, we're being Bible-spirited, uh, God-spirited, I think. And so help us today to delineate between uh, the truth, what your Word says, and, and what our culture would advocate as uh, in, a, in opposition. Uh, Father, we pray uh, for, continue to pray for Scott and Liliana and, and the McAndrew family and, and little Michael and uh, for um, uh, just your grace, your mercy. Um, what a witness, what a testimony to us all. And uh, just, uh, Lord, cover them with with. with your magnificent love in, in this very difficult time in their lives. Uh, be with us this afternoon, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Greg, as we, as we jump in here with uh, the very beginning, I think with a lot of these conversations, we keep coming back to Genesis 1 and 2 because they're foundational to this whole conversation of gender, sexuality, all, all, those, all those basic issues. Would you kind of introduce the subject a little bit with some thoughts from the very beginning of, of the Bible and what these have to do with male and female and moving towards human sexuality? Yeah, um, I'd be happy to. So remember, going back to our very first uh, Sunday School lesson, when we started this Against the Culture for the Culture, we talked about the importance of having a biblical worldview, meaning that the way we, we view the world, the way we understand the world, the way we interpret 
what's going on in the world, the way we respond to things that are going on in the world, has to be shaped by, grounded in, rooted in, in every way what God says in Scripture. And the reason why that matters is because God is the Creator. He is the Creator of everything. There's nothing that exists outside of what He Himself has made. And because He is the Creator and He's sovereign over His creation, when He speaks about His creation, whatever He says is what is true. There's no arguing against it. There's no debating it. It simply is reality. It's truth. It's what we must adhere to. It's how we have to think. And so whenever God speaks to something, it's, it's the voice of our Creator giving His fully authoritative view, understanding, interpretation of whatever that thing is. And so the Bible, you know, we say, and we wholeheartedly confess, the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Literally, it's like He's exhaling. You think of when you speak, when I speak, like right now, I have to exhale in order to speak. And so the picture we get is, is that every word, every page in this book is like God himself is physically present, exhaling to speak. So what we read in scripture has as much authority from God as if God were to manifest himself and start speaking right now. Okay, that's how authoritative this book is. It is the voice of God. Um, And so what the Bible says is what God says. And we don't ever need to make a distinction between that, okay? Whatever the Bible says, that is what God is saying to us. And so when we come to the very beginning of the Bible, when God creates everything, He said it, you know, you think about the the kingdom of God that you preached on, you know, in, in the pattern of that kingdom, you know, we see established early on in Genesis, and then we can make sense of what the kingdom is, how God's working, you know, from the very beginning, and then we make sense of it throughout the rest of the Bible. Same thing with what God has made. Whatever God says about things, however he, whatever patterns He set up, whatever, whatever He has done, that's how we are to continue to think about it because that's what He created it to be. And so we come to this issue. Uh, we've talked about abortion. We've talked about the transgenderism. And now we come to the issue of homosexuality. We have to think about this issue the way God thinks about it according to Scripture. Um, And so in the very beginning, we've read these verses so many times. Genesis chapter 1, look at verse 26, if you will. And remember, when we we read this, we know Moses is the, the human author, but the Holy Spirit of God was guiding Moses as he wrote this so that everything Moses wrote is exactly what God wanted us to have. Okay, so Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And we need to we can stop right there um, because we could also go to uh, chapter two. If you'll turn there, chapter two, let's look at verse 18. So, you know, you get Genesis one is like 
you know, the, the 30,000 foot view, the big sweep of that crew first creation week, Genesis two kind of goes back, slows things down a little bit, looking at the same events, just a little more in depth and a little bit slower. Verse uh, 18. And then God said he'd created man. He says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Um, and just what's this for time's sake, um, scoot down to uh, the end of verse 20. It says, for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so what we see going on here is God creating humanity and God created humanity in a very specific way. He created humanity in his image as chapter one in his image after his likeness. He created man to have dominion over all that he had made, over all the creatures, over, um, you know, over the earth itself. He was to to, you know, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. But how is he going to do that? That's where verse 27 comes in. It says in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. That is absolutely huge right there. When God thought of his image bearers, he made a duality, male and female. Okay, chapter one doesn't really talk about, you know, any distinctions or differences between male and female uh, other than God made his image bearers to be male and female. So back in chapter two, then we see God made man um, and he looked for a a helper suitable complementing him. And he creates woman from man. Um, And so what we see here is this first relationship is male and female. How is man going to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Well, that's why you have a male and a female. Um, That's the way God designed it. That is the primary relationship in God's creation is a man and a woman coming together in marriage for life in order to enjoy one another, to, to have children and to fill the earth with the glory of God in his image bearers. Now, that's a big sweeping overview, but that's the pattern that never changes. That never changes in Scripture. That that is God's design for humanity. Okay, That's his design for marriage. That's the key here. God's design for marriage is specifically one man and one woman and nothing and no one else. Okay, now I'm going to turn it over. Yeah, no, that's great. And it's interesting that when these conversations come up about homosexuality, very often you hear things like, there's only a handful of passages in the whole Bible that explicitly deal with homosexual behavior. And, uh, you know, those are disputed passages, they'll say. And they'll say, you know, it's clearly not a very big deal to God because God only has, what, like three or four really clear texts in the Old Testament, about three or so in the New Testament. You're dealing with about six really clear texts, and you've got a number of others that go alongside. But it's, it's not a large collection of passages. You know, the Bible talks a whole lot more about how you spend your money than it does about homosexuality. The Bible talks a whole lot more about, and fill in the blank, there's a whole bunch of things that the Bible talks, how, how to care for widows in the church receives far more ink on the page than uh, homosexuality. So usually the argument goes like this. Uh, and I've heard Rob Bell type people make these arguments, and then more recently other people make the arguments. It's not a big deal to God. 
one way or the other. It's just not a big deal. Like the Bible has over a thousand pages in it in just a plain text English Bible. You've got 1,100 pages and you've got only a handful of verses that even seem to approach the subject at all. In some verses, it's only a single word is even referred to. Like in 1 Timothy, it's a single word. In 1 Corinthians, it's two Greek words. In Romans, it's two verses. And in Leviticus, there's two verses. And in Genesis, you've got the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and you could talk about, we'll get to that. But the, the, the argument is it's not a big issue. Uh, if Jesus never talks about it. He never mentions it once, and, and it was going on during his time. So why are you guys so passionate about this issue? It's, it's probably bigotry. It, that's the real reason why you guys want to talk about this. I mean, you're spending multiple Sundays to talk about an issue that isn't a very prominent issue in the Bible. Yeah, have you all heard these kinds of arguments before? It's pretty common, I think. Uh, another thing that will be said, and I'll, I'll just, this is fresh off the news because I saw it this morning. This very early this morning, a, a gay club was shot up by someone this morning uh, in Colorado, I believe. Five people were killed. Several others were wounded before the shooter was, was subdued by some individuals who were present. I just saw that this morning you know, in the news feed. Some of you may have seen that. I could hear someone come in this room right now and say, hey, you're going to spend multiple weeks dealing with what the Bible says about homosexuality. Why don't you spend three or four weeks talking about why you shouldn't do what happened this morning in this club, Club Q it was called, in Colorado. Why don't you spend three weeks talking about why that is evil? Okay. Y'all hear these kinds of things? I hope I'm not just making this up. I think this is what is said all the time. And I would say number one is this. We fully and obviously condemn the actions of the individual this morning who walked in with several, with a rifle and uh, some other guns into the club and started indiscriminately shooting people in, in, a, in a gay bar, in a gay club. Absolutely, in, in, absolutely condemn that. Absolutely believe that that is evil, that is wicked, that is not what we are called to do in any sense or any form, and, and I have no problem saying that full stop. Here's the reason why we're not doing three weeks on why that's wrong. Virtually everyone on earth agrees that that's wrong. There is no major movement in the world saying it's good to go shoot up gay clubs. There's no streets painted in downtown Athens that say it's great to shoot up homosexuals. There's no, there's no sidewalk that's saying, let's, let's do violence to gay people. That's, that's, that doesn't exist. That's not out there. Uh, you, you can maybe find certain radical aspects in the Muslim world. There are certain radical uh, sects in the mu Muslim world that would behave in, in violent ways toward openly gay individuals. But generally speaking, in American culture, you're going to find that 99.99999% of people will all agree that what happened early this morning in that club was wrong. Agreed? But are we going to find mass agreement on human sexuality based on the Bible today? No, that's why we're going to spend a lot of weeks on this, because your college professor is not going to teach you to, to do violence against gay people. You're not going to hear that in your college class. And if you do, your college professor will be fired today. You're not going to hear that on social media. No one, I mean, on social media, you're not going to have a bunch of your friends saying, let's do violence to, to homosexuals. And if you do, they're going to be in a world of trouble socially and in every other way imaginable. But you are going to find pressure in every corner of your life from who you sit across at Thanksgiving in a couple weeks, right? Some of you are going to, are going to be at, in a dinner table with a, a homosexual relative. You're, you're going to be close to people who, are, who at least are more, they would call themselves progressive Christians, who believe that God is affirming of same-sex relationships. Some of you, your relatives go to same-sex affirming churches with rainbows outside their church, which are not anything to do with Noah, if you understand what I'm saying. They got uh, affirming uh, rainbows outside their churches. And uh, the, the denomination, the uh, uh, the uh, Methodist denomination, the worldwide Methodist denomination, as you know, in the last year. Now, now listen to this. So it's a massive denomination, right? It includes Africa and all, all the continents. They had to vote on whether or not the Bible supports same-sex relationships. And the vote was basically 50-50 across the world for the Methodist denomination. So what are they doing? They're splitting. And by the way, the only reason why Methodism did not go towards progressive Christianity as a whole 
is because of conservative African Christians. Just an amazing fact. And uh, so because Africa largely went conservative in that regard, they were like, guys, we can read our Bible. This is not right. Uh, so Methodism was stuck in the middle. And so now there's a whole new denomination of Methodism that's going to come out of this. I can't remember the name of it right now, but there's a conservative group coming out of it. And then you've got the progressive group that's left. It, it really is, I mean, you're just seeing who is actually going to believe the Bible and who's not. And out of a whole worldwide denomination, half said, we're going to jettison what Scripture says. Or we're going to change, really, what they would say, what Scripture says. So when people say, why are we making such a big deal out of it? I want to start by saying this. First of all, it's not so much that we are making a big deal out of this. It's that everywhere you look, other people are making a big deal out of it. I, frankly, I would way rather talk about the doctrine of the Trinity right now than talk about human sexuality. It's not like my favorite topic, but my students in my class are like, why are we talking about this again? Like, are you obsessed with this issue? I'm like, no, everyone you meet is going to be obsessed with this issue for the rest of your life. So I'm, I have to talk about it because I don't have a choice. You're, you're going to meet far more um, heresies when it comes to human anthropology than you are going to meet probably Trinitarian heresies, when you, I mean, maybe, uh, when you meet people. So when people say there's only a few passages that deal with it, just store this away in your head. This is a response you can give. When if someone says there's only six texts that deal with this, uh, I would say, first of all, even if there were no texts in the Bible, like there was no Leviticus 18, no Leviticus 20, no Genesis 19, no 1 Corinthians 6, no 1 Timothy 1, no Romans 1, none of those texts address the issue of homosexuality, which they do in explicit and clear form. If none of those texts existed, this would still be an undebatably clear issue in the Bible. Because the Bible talks about something called marriage in virtually every page you turn to. You've got a whole book, the Song of Solomon, which is celebrating marriage, right? You've got Jesus at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee at a wedding, right? And doing his first miracle to provide wine for a wedding between a man and a woman. You've got the Bible beginning with what Greg just read, Adam and Eve, the first married couple. The Bible ends, last two chapters, with the marriage of Christ and the church. And you can look at Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 and 1 Timothy 5 and on and on and on. Is marriage all over the place in the Bible? It's a dominant theme in the Bible. God compares his relationship with his people to a marriage. He considers idolatry to be like adultery throughout the Bible. Would you say marriage is a major theme? Yes. Would you say human sexuality is clearly in the Bible only placed and blessed by God in the confines of marriage? Is that a pretty clear theme in the Bible? It's not six passages. What passage doesn't assume that or teach that when you deal with these issues? So marriage is from the first chapter of the Bible to the literal last chapter. Marriage is dominant. Sex is always blessed and reserved only for marriage. Hebrews 13 says, blessed is the marriage bed that is undefiled, right? That is pervasive. Is sexual sin pervasively condemned in the Bible? Pornea, sexual immorality, everywhere you turn, it's every time, you know, Paul does these things called vice lists in the New Testament where he, can, he lists a whole bunch of sins altogether. They're called vice lists. And if you read his vice lists, they're in Galatians, they're in Ephesians, they're in all, all over his letters, Romans. When you look at his vice lists, virtually everyone talks about sexual immorality, and it's one of the most prominent sins in every single one of Paul's vice lists. Now, that is assuming a worldview about human sexuality. And the worldview that's assumed throughout the whole of Scripture is that God has made marriage to be between one man and one woman for life, till death do us part. What God has joined together, let no man tear asunder or tear apart. Within marriage, God has made sexuality for procreation, the producing of children, be fruitful and multiply, but also for the, the pleasure and joy that that, that that intimacy brings, which is what Song of Solomon celebrates. There is no exception to this. 
that is the only form of human sexuality that God blesses between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. There doesn't, now I'm going I'm to get a little bit crazy here, okay? I hope you're ready here. I don't need the text in Leviticus, what is it, chapter 18, 19, 20. I don't need the text that condemn bestiality or what is now being called zoophilia. I'm not making that term up. That's a real word. Zoophilia, love of animals in that way. Oh my goodness. I don't, I don't need any explicit text that condemns bestiality to know that that is wrong because the Bible already tells us what sex and marriage are for. It's for a man and a woman in the context of marriage. But there are explicit texts in the Bible that condemn bestiality. Go read Leviticus, I think it's 18 to 20. And it will condemn it by name. And so on and on. I don't need those texts. Jesus never mentioned bestiality, never said anything about it by name. But is it obviously wrong? Yes. How about this one? Incest in the Bible. It is explicitly condemned in Leviticus. Chapter after chapter, they go through every relationship you can imagine. It's almost embarrassing to read it out loud in public because you're like, wow, this is pretty, uh, pretty direct. You almost feel guilty just reading it. <laughs> you, almost feel, you almost feel strange reading it. But, but God is, is, is unembarrassed. He tells us explicitly what he is condemning. Uh, and he talks about marriage between uh, certain relatives and things like that. Now, how about this? I don't need any of those verses to know that that's wrong. But, but think about this. In the New Testament, Jesus never once refers to incest and condemns it. Does that mean he's okay with it? No. In fact, the New Testament only mentions and condemns incest in one text. 1 Corinthians 5, a man has his father's wife and you are proud. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let the evil man be purged from among you. Do church discipline and remove this guy from your church because he's sleeping with his stepmother. Now, that's the only explicit text on incest in the entire New Testament. Does that mean God doesn't really care about it? It's not a big deal to him? If, if, if incest is being practiced, because it's only mentioned in one place. Well, I heard a scholar, Robert Gagnon, who's a scholar on this issue. He's great on this topic, Robert Gagnon. He said, listen, some sins are so egregiously and self-evidently wicked that even having to raise a discussion about them is itself a loss. You understand? If we're having to have a debate about incest, something has gone horribly wrong. Right? If, a, if a church is actually having to vote on whether that's wrong or not, that church has gone so far astray, it's hard to even call it a church anymore if you're having to vote on whether incest is wrong. So there's only one text in the whole New Testament, one, that condemns incest. Only one text. 1 Corinthians 5 is it. Go look for any other text. I don't know of a single one. Does that mean it's not a big deal? God doesn't care that much about it? No. Some things are so evident by the, how God has wired us as male and female for appropriate forms of marriage that to even bring up and debate them and mention them over and over is itself a kind of loss. So... Just that's kind of a starting point there, but um, I'll, I'll just mention a book that we all, I think we all have this book. Kevin DeYoung is a master of clarity in his writing. This is a very brief book, 150 pages. It's the best short treatment on the topic I have read. It's called, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality by Kevin DeYoung? This is the best, brief, and accessible short treatment. He covers pretty much all the major issues and all the major texts in short, succinct, understandable uh, prose, <laughs> very easy writing. And I highly recommend, if you're, if you're going to read one book, this is a great place to, to start on the, on the subject. Other thoughts on these things? I, I wanted to mention uh, a quote from this same book, short paragraph, so bear with me. Uh, this is on page 26 by Kevin DeYoung, if God wanted to establish a world in which the normative marital and sexual relationship is that between persons of the opposite sex, Genesis 1-2 fits perfectly as we've already described. The narrative strongly suggests that what the church has almost uniformly taught, marriage is to be between one man and one woman. A different marital arrangement requires an entirely different creation account 
one with two men or two women or at least the absence of any hint of gender complementarity and procreation. It's not hard to conclude from a straightforward reading of Genesis 1 and 2 that the divine design for sexual intimacy is not any combination of persons or even any type of two persons coming together, but one man becoming one flesh with one woman. Now, if you deny that, which the culture somewhat has denied, uh, they're not reading this book. This book is the blueprint, God's plan for mankind from the beginning. He even goes into, there's a, there's a couple comparison. I thought this was interesting too, um, on page um, 2032. He says, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a complementarian uh, redemptive significance. Uh, the, the, the sun and the moon, morning and evening, day and night, the sea and dry land, plants and animals. I, I mentioned plants and animals. How do you think plants and animals reproduce? Now, on the lower uh, uh, genetic uh, limbs, I guess, that you, you know, you, there's, there's some oddities, I, I might, but for most, for mammal, mammals and, and humans and, and so on, man, male and female, opposite sex. Um, in every pairing, each part belongs with the other, but neither is interchangeable, just as heaven and earth were created to be together, and indeed, that's how the whole story of the Bible ends, so marriage is to be a symbol, a symbol of this divine design, two differentiated entities uniquely fitted for one another. That's, that's incredible. We don't think that rationally. If I feel like it's okay, it's okay. And that's what our culture is saying. Like the, we were talking about earlier, uh, the, was it the Defense of Marriage Act or something that Congress has just approved, which includes homosexuality. Yeah. What's interesting about this, I listened to a, uh, a debate um, that James White and Michael Brown had with two uh, pro-homosexual pastors. Um, and in the debate, one of the things that uh, James White asked, because they have a, you know, a typical debate, you, you, know, you have each side kind of present their case, and you know, after each one presents, and they have a, a time for questions where they can you know, say, okay, well, we've got a rebuttal to this, and they get their rebuttal. And they have what's called cross-examination, where you can directly ask your, your, your opponents uh, questions. And James White talked about how um, you know, the, one, the, the, the side that was affirming homosexuality would say, you know, Jesus doesn't mention it, and Paul does, um, but, you know, he, he wouldn't outright say it, but he would hint that Paul was imperfect and that what Paul wrote might not be absolutely trustworthy. He wouldn't outright say that. Um, and then James White asked the question, I can't remember the specific sin. He was like, well, Jesus doesn't mention this sin and you'd say it's wrong. And he was like, well, yeah. And he was like, where do you get it? Well, Paul talks about that. This guy was in completely blind to the fact that he was 100% contradicting himself and his whole methodology. He would say you can't use Jesus to say homosexuality is wrong um, and you can't trust Paul. But then another issue that Jesus didn't directly address, he'd say, well, I'd say that's wrong because that's what Paul said. And it's like they, we have to keep in mind, I think, when we, we talk about this, there is a, you know, Paul talks about we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle, you know, against 
the powers, the, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's spiritual forces at work underneath what we can see behind the scenes, deceiving people, blinding their eyes. I mean, that's what Paul says Satan does. He blinds the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing um, the glory of God in Christ. They can't see it. They're blind to it. And so this guy in this debate who was pro, pro he was affirming homosexuality, like he was absolutely speaking out of both sides of his mouth, saying you can't do that on this issue, but you can on this issue. Exact same methodology, exact same two people they're talking about. And he was absolutely blind to the fact that he was contradicting himself up one side and down the other. You, you have these inconsistencies. I remember uh, years ago at the Sparrow's Nest, I, I used to work down there and, and uh, I was preaching a little message and this guy says, well, I don't, I was quoting Paul and I don't even remember the context, but he said, I don't, I don't believe in Paul. I said, what do you mean you don't? I mean, I kind of did a Q&A thing during my message. And he said, I just, I just cut and pasted it in my Bible. And he really did. He had his Bible all cut up, just like Thomas Jefferson, just deleted the parts that he didn't like, particularly Paul, and just eliminated him from his Bible. And so we make just decisions like that where you just got through reading um, Timothy about all scriptures breathed out by God. That's all scripture mm -hmm. from Genesis 1 to Revelation. <clears throat> My wife, Kelly, will remember uh, a few years ago, someone visited our church. They don't, they don't go here currently. But this particular uh, young woman did not uh, agree with our view uh, as a church on biblical gender roles. Did not like biblical gender roles. She called herself sort of like an evangelical feminist and just said... What do you I, mean, generals? Gender roles. Oh, gender, gender roles. I'm sorry. And so, so just, uh, uh, just did not appreciate a sermon I had preached in First Timothy 2. And uh, so she asked uh, if we could meet. So Kelly and I went to dinner with her and with her, with her, with her boyfriend. And uh, we talked for maybe an hour and a half. And th there's a whole lot I could say about that conversation. And we also emailed some. But one in particular point was... At the beginning of the, very early in the conversation, I said something, I don't remember the exact words. I said something along the lines of this. If we, if we hold to our pre-commitments of like our feminist view of, of, of not having biblical generals, if we hold to those tenaciously and we're not willing to, 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 to give them to God if he wants to change what we believe, if we're going to hold on to those with all of our might, I said, then what we're going to end up doing is we're going to end up having to uh, throw books of the Bible out of the Bible. We're going to have to get rid of entire books or even authors of the Bible. I said, I said that at the beginning of the conversation. Let's fast forward almost 90 minutes. Okay, we've been debating back and forth. It's been not too heated, largely friendly, but, but pretty intense conversation. We get to the end of an hour and a half, and I will not, I, I kid you not, we're talking about 1 Timothy 2. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man the, the, about women should not be pastors and that kind of thing. And we're, we're talking about that very passage, 1 Timothy 2, 11, 12, 13. And we reached a point where she was trying to give alternate arguments for why it doesn't mean what it sounds like it means, and I kept countering the arguments because I think the arguments are much stronger against her view than the other. So we went back and forth, and finally she admitted the arguments are very strong, that that's what the verse really means. Like 1 Timothy really is saying what she feared it was saying. And so she finally said, how do we know Paul actually wrote 1 Timothy? And I said, see, I, I tried to say it gently. I said, I said, do you remember at the beginning of the conversation? I said that if we hold on to our view of feministic gender roles, we're going to end up throwing books of the Bible out. 
And you just said, what if it's a, what if it's, they call it like a, an apocryphal book, like not written by the person it claims to be written by. What if First Timothy's not actually Pauline? What if it's like an imposter? We should throw it out. And I said, see, that's the logic. The logic is if I hold on to what I want the Bible to say strong enough, I'm eventually either going to have to bend the text to make it say the opposite of what it clearly says. This is true of gender, sexuality, all these things. Or I'm going to eventually just say, Paul got it wrong, right? Or he didn't write Romans, or he didn't write First Timothy or First Corinthians. Uh, so I, I, would, I would just say to those who claim to be Christians, let us be so humble and say, Lord, whatever your word says, I don't care what it does to change my life. I don't care how difficult a pill it's going to be for me to swallow and how much my interior life is going to have to be reconfigured to submit gladly to what you command me to do, whatever I am, whatever I'm doing. But God, make me willing to say, God, I'm not going to cheat your text. I'm not going to manipulate your word. I'm not going to do what Jerry calls spiritual gymnastics to bend the text to make it kind of do what I want it to do. Lord, I am going to come to you. I'm going to be, this is the one to whom the Lord looks with favor. He who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles at his word. Just say, God, I don't understand. Maybe this is where someone's at. Maybe someone listens to this online and they're struggling with this issue. Lord, I don't like what your word seems to say about this. I've grown up thinking a different thing. I really don't want to believe it's what your word says is what it says. But this is what I would want the person to say. Lord, please make me humble and contrite in heart and, and to tremble with awe before your word that I not misuse it or misrepresent it. And God, please make me willing to receive whatever your word says because I know at the end of the day, God is good. And whatever God commands, even if it at first doesn't taste right in my mouth based on how I've grown up or what I believe, it is actually good for me as a man or as a woman. You know, wh- whatever it is, whatever God has Commanded is actually good for me, and God make me willing and humble to receive it as good and humble to actually believe what it says. I think that, if I'm being honest here, when I listen to the Matthew Vines of this world who take very progressive Christian views on these things and write books about it, I don't get the sense that these people tremble at God's Word. I get the sense they play fast and loose with God's Word. That they, they do whatever they can. Well, you know, in, in the Greek culture, this and that, and they try to get rid of the obvious meaning of these texts. And we will work through each of these texts in the coming weeks very slowly. And, and you'll see, I think, the texts are abundantly clear. Like when Leviticus says, a man shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. What else could that be talking about? And then when Paul picks up the language of that in Greek and reuses it in 1 Timothy... Paul must be reaffirming that Levitical law. I mean, these arguments, I think, are very clear. But the issue is not, I mean, just just to make this as as clear as I can. If I don't want to believe something, I'm not going to believe it. But if I'm humble and say, God, I'm willing to go wherever your word says, you will be amazed at how clear things become very quickly with God's word on these issues. Because suddenly you'll say, wow, how did I not see how obvious this is? Uh, This is not not actually that hard. There, There are very hard things to understand in the Bible. Human marriage and sexuality is actually very straightforward. It's very clear. It's one of the easy, I mean, I'm not trying to sound, I'm not trying to just sound dismissive, but it's one of the easiest issues, actually, to understand when you really come just to see what God's Word says. There are much more difficult issues to understand, uh, but uh, thoughts on some of that? Uh, Wholeheartedly agree. Um, Going back to um, just that all of the Bible is God's Word, um, another aspect, something you have to keep in mind when you're talking with people is some people have been introduced to a, a hermeneutic. What hermeneutic simply deals with how you study the Bible. They've been introduced to a hermeneutic that says 
the red letters of the Gospels are somehow more weighted and more inspired than the black letters mm-hmm. and the rest of the Bible. Um, if all Scripture is breathed out by God, then that means what we read in Paul has the exact same authority as when we, re- we read the very words of Jesus in the Gospels. Okay? We don't weight Scripture as though, well, I'm going to give more weight to what Jesus says and less weight to Paul. And so when I think there's a conflict, well, I'm just, you know, Paul's Paul, I'm going to go with Jesus. That doesn't work. That absolutely doesn't work. Um, in in Jesus' mind, in the apostles' mind, all Scripture is equal. It's equally authoritative. It's equally from God. Um, and we have to understand that some people are going to come with that kind of mindset. That somehow what Jesus says is more authority, has more authority than Paul does. Can I make a point yeah. on that? So if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Wholeheartedly agree. The black letters and the red letters are all God, God's very uh, voice. But just, just to reaffirm Paul here, remember Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, where we get a lot of our red letters, right, also wrote part two, which was called Acts, which we spent a long time in church here going through verse by verse. If you look at Acts 9, let's, let's, read about the, let's see what the red letters say about Paul. You ready? Let's, let's see what the red letters say about Paul. Look at, uh, you know, Paul's on his way to persecute Christians. Acts 9, look at verse 3. <coughs> now, as he, this is Saul or Paul, went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, now, if you have a red-letter Bible right now, you got red letters, right? This is Jesus speaking, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. Jesus. So let's get Jesus' opinion of Paul. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, Saul is, is about to be converted. S- skip down here to verse 11. Uh, yeah, 11. Uh, let me skip even further. Let's go to 15. The Lord said to him, go, this is referring to Paul, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Jesus chose Paul personally. And the red letters say, he's my chosen messenger. This is my man. I've chosen Paul for this job. So when Paul writes Romans, he was commissioned by the red letters. He was commissioned by Jesus to write, to write Romans. So don't ever in any way think that these are pitted against each other. Jesus chose Paul, and Paul is speaking in the authority and, and, and under the inspira- inspiration of the Holy Spirit of Christ. Uh, other thoughts on that, Greg? Um, I, I, it went away. No, that's good. Pop well, I, just, I think, again, going back, one more time, I always I heard many years ago that the old Bible can be taught the first two chapters, God's plan for mankind. And I've heard many wedding ceremonies use these very words. I mean, Adam had a had a was challenged to name all the animals, and I'm sure that in naming all those animals, he looked eyeball to eyeball with goats and sheep and cows and and whatever, and and he didn't find you know, a helper suitable for him. So God takes the initiative. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And then he saw that he was alone. That's the only time in in these two verses, it's not good that the man should be alone. Everything else was good. And so he made him a helper suitable for him and brought him, took a rib out of his side, created woman, made woman, and brought him, her, to him, just like the father would bring the bride to her room. What a beautiful 
testimony and story, and I've heard this in many, many marriage ceremonies. And that's God's plan. Now, we've come a long way in culture from this original plan. But when you violate God's blueprint, uh, then, then you've, you've ignored. Uh, it's, I think it's called sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's all I got for now. All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and wrap up. Greg, can you close us in prayer? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, even as we've begun to just wade into uh, this issue of what does the Bible say and how, to, how should we think about homosexuality and respond to this issue that we're facing so, so much in our day, God, thank you that your word is clear. Um, and I pray, God, that you would give us all hearts that are submissive to your word. God, that we would want to receive it, as Mark said, even when it's hard at first at times, Lord, help us submit to you. And God, we pray that you would change our hearts, that you'd redirect our affections and our our emotions and our inclinations, God, to line up with what your word says. Uh, Lord, we can't see as beautiful what you've declared to be beautiful, God, unless you open our eyes to see it. And I pray, Lord, that our eyes would be wide open and that we'd be able to take in the full beauty and glory of your design for marriage, which is one man and one woman in marriage, covenanted together uh, for life. God, that is your design and it is beautiful. And I pray, God, that as we begin to see more and more that that is what you have made and that is your design, God, that we would have no stomach for anything other than that that any other option would become distasteful to us. And Lord, I pray that you will help us, Lord, from all that we learn, be able to give a clear, humble, loving, gracious, but ever unflinching and firm testimony to the truth of your word and to the truth of your design in marriage. Uh, And ultimately, God, I pray that you'd help us point people to Christ. God, because all our bad thinking and acting on this issue shows how much we need a Savior, And we're thankful that Jesus saves us from whatever sins we were rooted in. And he brings us uh, and and forgives us and makes us his own. God, uh, just walk with us now in this service upcoming. Lord, help us together as a church draw near to you as we sing, as we pray, as we study your word. Um, God, help us meet with you and help us be conformed to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So again, next Sunday, the only adult Sunday school and even children's Sunday school that will be open will be our time of prayer in the gym.